If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hello and welcome to the BBC History magazine weekly podcast. I'm Rob Attar, Deputy Editor of the magazine. This is the first of our November 2011 podcasts. Don't forget, BBC History magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information. Or you can follow us at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash historyextra. Coming up this week, we have... Suddenly they're being expected to fly at 60 foot and, you know, drop a, drop a bomb on a sixpence. I mean, that's a big, big ask. That was James Holland on the Dambusters raid. BBC History magazine editor David Musgrove has been talking with James Holland, historian and TV presenter. James is working on a book about the 1943 Dambusters raid to be published next year, and he's presenting a BBC Time Watch programme on the subject this week. The Dambusters raid was the brainchild of the engineer and designer Barnes Wallace, and the operation was led by squadron leader Guy Gibson. The plan was to destroy dams in the Ruhr Valley and thus disrupt German industrial output with the ensuing flood of water. David asked James to give us the background to the story. Well, I suppose it goes back to Barnes-Wallace, and right from the beginning of the war, he had started to think about how one might get Germany out of the war uh, in a way that would avoid the mass slaughter of the First World War. And I suppose in that regard, he was no different from Charles Portal, Chief of the Air Staff, and also um, Air Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, uh, obviously uh, commander of Bomber Command, uh, from February 1942 onwards. Uh, that was their sort of guiding principle. Uh, and also, of course, area bombing at the time was the only real means in which you could, uh, that Bomber Command, the RAF, could really take the attack to the enemy. But Barnes-Wallace was thinking of alternative ways. If you can take out the sources of power, then industry, the war industry, cannot, cannot function. That's his 
theory. So he's working towards that and, and his initial thoughts are a deep penetration earthquake bomb that would go 30 foot uh, or more, 30 meters rather, under the, under the ground, set up this huge sort of seismic pulse, uh, which would then destroy underground oil installations, coal mines, dams, whatever it might be. That was the start of it. And to carry this enormous bomb, he also was designing with Rex Pearson, at, uh, the chief um, designer at Vickers Aviation, um, a six-engine bomber, which he labelled the Victory Bomber. And he put all this down in a paper, uh, which was published, which he sort of, um, which he wrote and didn't publish, but wrote and handed out in the spring of 1941. And it got quite a lot of attention. And on a basis of that, an ad hoc committee was formed at the Ministry of Aircraft Production called the um, Attack on Axis Dams Committee. Uh, and this was the idea of sort of how could one go about destroying the dams. Barnes Wallace's original ideas came to nothing at this stage of the war. Um, but a whole load of tests were carried out at the Road Research Laboratory, which had been established in the 1930s to design and, 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 and look into the structure of building roads, which is, of course, that's why it had that name, um, but had been taken over by the Ministry of Aircraft Production during the war. And there were a series of laboratories where, you know, boffins and scientists did experiments on behalf of the um, Ministry of Aircraft Production. And there they were setting out and they were doing experiments on dams, explosives against scale models of dams. Now the interesting thing about a gravity dam is that if you do a cross section down the wall of the dam, down the, you know, slice through it, they're all pretty much the same, whether they're six inches high or whether they're 400 foot high. So whatever destroys a, you know, something that's two foot high, if you scale that up, in theory, it would then destroy a bigger dam and a bigger dam and a bigger dam until you get to the Myrna or the Eder Dam in Germany, the two great dams in, 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 in Germany. So that was the kind of sort of genesis of it. But it was kind of, sort of slightly awkward timing because, as I mentioned, Harris takes over command of Bomber Command in February 1942. And at that time, Bomber Command is a really, really small force. You know, you're talking about sort of 400 frontline aircraft, of which, you know, the vast majority are two-engine um, and don't have that kind of huge, great bomb load that a Lancaster or even a Halifax, or even for that matter, a Sterling has. Um, you know, you're talking about, you know, Whitley's and Hamptons and, and Wellington's. Um, and the damage they can achieve just by this comparative lack of bombs is pretty small. And then you add to that the lack of sophisticated navigational aids. And that's why they've got their, you know, they're dropping bombs all over the place willy-nilly. By the beginning of 1943, however, that's all changing. And his force is getting to a state where he is happy to start launching an intensified um, uh, air campaign. And he starts off by attacking the Ruhr, which is launched at the beginning of uh, March 1943. So, in other words, you know, the um, majority of his aircraft by this stage are four-engine Lancasters and, and, and Halifaxes and Sterlings, few, far fewer two-engine bombers, and the payload they can take if, uh, it has doubled in comparison to what it was a, a year before. And the numbers of aircraft are also inching up. But, you know, even at the beginning of 1943, spring of 1943, this is not the bomber command of the latter, you know, 18 months of the war, where, you know, they could regularly send out 700, 800, 1,000 bombers. This is still quite small but but certainly a big notch up so Harris having got his force at this to, to the level more or less where he wants it or certainly at the start of where he wants it plus the increase in, in navigational aids is not very happy to suddenly find that there's talk of 
peeling off 30 Lancasters to do a special precision um, uh, job, you know, carrying one bomb, um, etc., etc., which is where we've got to with the bouncing bomb and the whole idea for dropping the bombs on the dams. Okay, so it was the um, partly the sort of the technical capacity that the Air Force had reached in 1943 that enabled the the bomb the dam busters raised to happen. But was it also the state of the war at that point, and you know the, the geopolitical situation that meant that it was a good idea by that juncture? Yes, it was. I mean, the, the starting point for Wallace was this idea of sort of, you know, cutting off the power source. And that is by 1943 with the bouncing bomb is, is tempered. He develops the idea of the bouncing bomb in, in the spring of 1942. Uh, and originally he's thinking of it not in terms of attacking the dams necessarily, but more as an anti-shipping vessel. And certainly the people who are most interested to start off with are the Admiralty, you know, the Navy. And they can see that, you know, suddenly they're thinking, ah, oh, that's how we get rid of the turpits lying in that fjord in Norway. We'll send a bouncing bomb, it'll skip over the torpedo nets, you know, job done. That's the idea behind that. But suddenly he quickly realises that, that actually there's this could be used against the dams as well. And the reason for that is subsequent to him discovering the ability of, or, or, or the possibility of bouncing a bomb across the water, is those experiments that were being carried out at the Road Research Lab, they discovered that um, you don't need a huge amount of charge to destroy the dam wall if you can get the charge to the dam wall. Now, put, laying a charge at the, at, at the wall of something is, is nothing new. I mean, everyone knew about that. That's, that's basic physics, and every sapper in the British Army would have known about that. The key point is, is if you detonate an explosive underwater at a sufficient depth against the wall, then the explosion is far bigger than anyone had appreciated at the time. And what that meant, of course, is that suddenly you don't need a six-engine victory bomber. A Lancaster will do the job. You, you, you know, it's still a pretty massive amount of explosive. It's sort of seven and a half thousand pounds, which is you know, three, more than three tons. But it's something that the Lancaster can take. So suddenly, Wallace can see that this is a way of getting rid of the dams. And the dams are one of his original targets when he was putting together his first work at the beginning of the war. So it just comes about at that time, but of course, halfway through the war, beginning of 1943, this is still a really, really good time to do it. And actually, in a, in a funny sort of way, it complements what Harris is doing uh, with his Battle of the Ruhr. The Battle of the Ruhr is, is, is you know, traditional area bombing, high level, 18,000 feet plus. But the Ruhr dams, the Myrna and the Zorpa particularly, feed into the Ruhr. So actually, this is not a bad idea. It's just that Harris in the spring of 1943 doesn't think that this has got a hope in hell of ever seeing the light of day or succeeding, even if it does see the light of day. And he just thinks it's a dangerous diversion of resources. But once it gets into, you know, once there's enough momentum behind it, once Portal, the chief of the air staff, says, no, I think this is worth backing, there's a momentum behind it which sort of, you know, there is an urgency, other thing, you know, take priority over other projects. And suddenly there is this kind of sort of steamroll effect where everything is gearing up towards this attack in May 1943. And it has to be in May 1943 because it has to be when the water levels are at the highest or else it won't get the, 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 the upkeep won't sink, the, that is the bouncing bomb, won't sink to a, a suitable level to cause the maximum amount of explosive damage. Okay. So that's why it has to be then. So uh, a trite question, but who's who's the real hero of this story? Is it Barnes Wallace? Is it Guy Gibson? Is it someone else completely, or is it is it is a stupid question to ask? Well, it's not a stupid question to ask, but it's it's not down to one man. I mean, everyone plays their part in it. You know, every, every single crew plays a part in it. Um, 
Wallace is the brainchild, but but it doesn't happen. You know, the fact that it's given the green light at the end of February 1943 is not purely down to, to Wallace. I mean, one of the people who's key to this is, is um, Group Captain Fred Winterbottom, who's a spook. You know, he's the head of air, air intelligence at MI6. Um, he's got one of the best address books in the land. Um, you know, he's suave. He's a, been a spy in Germany in the 1930s. Um, he knows everybody and he's a great mate of Wallace's. And they regularly meet and they talk and they discuss. And, you know, it, it's, it's Winterbottom who in 1940 says, I love what you're saying about your ideas about cutting off the power sources in Germany, but you know, you've got to put this down on paper. You've got to research this properly. Write a paper, get your sources right. I'll give you all the help I can, feeding in bits of intelligence and getting him on the right track. And it's actually, it's winter bottom, crucially, when about the second week of February, it looks like the whole thing's going to be going to be off you know the navy area um, the navy look like they're going to go with their smaller version of the bouncing bomb the high ball but it looks like the air ministry aren't going to bite because um air vice marshal linnell who is um a controller of research um, chief of research, uh, research and development at the ministry of aircraft production he's wavering on on the side of kind of not going with it because as much as anything it's distracting from another four engine Bomber project, which Vickers are doing, the uh, the Windsor, and it's distracting from that. Uh, he thinks it's diversion of resources, like Harris, and he's sort of inching towards saying, "I don't think we should support this." At that moment, um, Wallace writes to Winterbottom saying about the latest trials they've been doing on the South Coast in Dorset with these with the prototype um, bouncing bomb, and saying that you know he managed to get it to bounce three quarters of a mile and you know it's a great achievement and blah 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 and at the end of it in pen he writes help oh help and Winterbottom does he writes to um, Air Vice Marshal Inglis who is one of four um, assistant chiefs of the air staff at the air ministry and it's a genius letter I mean a, a, of sort of of cunning and suggestion and in it, he implies very, very heavily that if the, first of all, that the Prime Minister's office are very interested in this, which they're not. Um, secondly, he suggests that if we, if the RAF don't get a move on, um, the Navy are going to steal a march on this brilliant new weapon. And thirdly, he suggests that, that um, the Chief of the Air Staff can't possibly have been fully briefed on this. And this absolutely does the trick, because English clearly immediately goes straight to Portal. And at the same time, Harris finds out what's going on, writes to Portal and says, this is outrageous, it's a complete waste of time, I'll bet my hat this never comes off, you know, stop wasting my time, you know, give them one Lancaster to play with, you know, to, to, to play with um, while we get on with a proper war. But already Portal's hurt, he's got wind of what's going on, and he goes, no, I think I, I like the sound of this. He then sees a film of the, of the trials that have taken place at Chesil Beach on the, on the south coast of Dorset. And he says, no, you know, I, I completely trust your judgment, Bert Harris, but um, I'm going to go with this. I want to, I want to, I want to go with it. Mm. And, and so you could almost say that Winterbottom is one of, one of the heroes of the whole thing. Okay. Okay. But, you know, no one, no one really sort of thinks about him in terms of being associated at all with uh, operational chastise. Sure. Give me, uh, so, so we, once we've got the green light... We know it's going ahead. Give me, give me a sense, if you can, of the, the sort of the the drama of the operation. How confident were was anybody that it was going to be a success? Well, I, you know, I, I've got to say I'm with Harris on this because if I'd been Harris in the middle of February 1943 and I'd been said, okay, this is what's going to happen, 
um, a whole load of Lancasters going to take off uh, at night. They're going to fly over uh, enemy-occupied territory um, to the Ruhr dams and to the Eder Dam, which involves going across some of the most heavily defended uh, parts of Germany, indeed parts of the entire world at that point. Um, at night and drop a bomb that bounces uh, with precision at a certain height, 60 foot precisely, um, at 240 miles an hour at a certain distance from the damn wall, I'd have thought this is La La Land. I really would have done. And it's a big, big punt from, from Portal. I mean, of course, as Chief of the Air Staff, that is your job to make the really big decisions. And he, boy, does he make one. At the time, no upkeep has been made. You know, this is based on the prototype. No one knows whether the much bigger upkeep, which is the bomb they're going to drop to, to destroy the dams, will even work. And none's ever been fitted to a Lancaster. No one knows. On the back of just a prototype and a series of trials and a prototype and very, very overconfident sales banter from Wallace and his supporters, the green light is given. And... It's a hell of a decision to make. I mean, it really, really is. And when you consider that the Battle of the Ruhr has just been, you know, is just starting. You know, the first night is 5th, 6th of March. It's the beginning of that battle, the intensified air campaign, strategic air campaign against Germany. It's an incredible moment. And I always wonder what Wallace must have been thinking as he left the Millbank offices of the Ministry of Aircraft Production where that decision was made on the 26th of February. He must have walked out thinking, have I been completely hoisted by my own batard? Because he's bigged it up. So yeah, we can do it in the time. Of course we can. Yes, it won't, should be a problem. But I mean, this has to be, this bomb has to be straddled underneath a Lancaster, which hasn't yet been modified, which involves Vickers who are, you know, making the design of the upkeep because that's where Wallace works. With Avro, who are a rival aviation company, that involves them working together in lightning quick time, sourcing all sorts of materials for these bombs in lightning quick time in the middle of a war when there's countless other pulls on their time. And at the same time, you've got to then form from scratch a new squadron specially to do this and train them when you think that most of these guys, in fact, all of these guys, what they do when they go on ops is they fly not together but separately over a particular target at 18,000 plus feet and drop it and if they get it within a few miles then they're doing quite well. Suddenly they're being expected to fly at 60 foot and you know drop a, drop a bomb on a sixpence. I mean that's a big, big ask. Mm, mm. So what happened that night then? How, uh, give, give, give me a little sense of, of, the, of the drama. Of the, of the raid itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, the raid itself is, is, I think, the most incredible feat of airmanship. It really is. It, it defies belief. Also, the web forecast looks like it was almost, almost certainly wrong because they were, you know, the web forecast was that it was completely uh, perfect flying conditions. Well, if you were flying at 18,000 feet uh, and doing a normal, you know, bog standard bomber command raid, then the weather conditions would have been perfect. But there were all sorts of signs. It was an end of an anticyclone. There was possibly high level night jets, uh, low level night jets rather, operating. And certainly there were wind speeds of at least five knots, if not 10 to 15 knots in the North Sea, which had not been predicted. And you've got to remember, these guys are operating 100 foot. Well, one of the great navigational aids is G. Well, G doesn't really work under 100 feet. So you have to do, you, you're having to, to navigate by dead reckoning, which is incredibly difficult to do accurately. 
And some of them do go a little bit off course as it happens. But most of them, with the exception of two, and uh, you know, manage to reach the Dutch coast okay and, and you know, don't have to turn back. Of the 19 that go, 17 plough on, two get knocked down by flying straight into telegraph pylons. You know, that's, that's the end of them. Um, another one gets shot down by flak on the way out. Um, so does another one. So there's four down. So that's 13 left to attack three dams. Some of them don't even find it. Well, you know, Anderson doesn't even fly, find the Zorpa um, because the mist is starting to come in. I mean, this is incredibly difficult just to get to the Myrna. And once they get to the Myrna and destroy that, where there's plenty of flag firing up at them, they then have to go and move to the Ada, which is difficult to find. And, you know, I've flown over that stretch from the Myrna Dam to the Ada at about 2,000 feet in, on a bright sunny day in the middle of the day. And it was quite hard to navigate, even with a map on my, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not bad at map reading, but I found it quite difficult to find. Mm. You imagine what that was like at night, you know, with mist starting to creep into the, into the valleys. And the Ada is, is unbelievable. When you go there, you just cannot understand how they could have ever, ever done it because it's surrounded by hills in front of the dam wall uh, on the water about three quarters of a mile away. There's this spit that extends out. Uh, and again, the, from that little spit, the, uh, the slopes rise. They're wooded. They rise quite highly, several hundred feet. On the other side is, is high ground, and beyond the dam, again, is another ridge of high ground. So what they have to do is come down this, this gully on the right-hand side of this promontory, on top of which is a, which is a castle, which is quite a convenient uh, landmark for them to spot. They have to come down there, swoop down from about 1,200 feet to you know, 100, get round this spitter, do a 90-degree dogleg. And you remember, you've got 30 tonnes of Lancaster plus three and three and a half tonnes worth of upkeep. So, you know nearly 35 tons worth of of metal hurtling when you when you turn that the the aircraft still wants to go the same way so you you've got that inertia to deal with you've got to do a pretty tight turn and get to 60 foot and have leveled out and then drop your upkeep dead center so that it is it is approaching and bouncing towards the dam at 90 degrees to the dam then as soon as you've let go, you've then got to pull back on the stick, climb quickly and get over that next ridge. And they go round and round and round and they can't, you know, the mist is growing and they can't really do it and they can't get the exact position. There's only three of them with upkeeps that, that do that. Um, and it's just an incredible feat. And they do manage it. You know, Shannon drops one uh, pretty much in the right position. The next one to go around is Les Knight and Les Knight and they, they drop it and that's what blows it. It's absolutely incredible. When you go there, you cannot believe they did this. And the Zorpa, it's the third dam that they attacked, the third of the main targets. And that's a different construction. It's an earthen dam. So it's got a, it's got a concrete core and then it's got big earth banks either side of it. So, so both sides are kind of uh, uh, are sort of mirrored. And that's a different construction, so the guys have to go, go along, along the, the top of the dam rather than attacking it from 90 degrees to the face. They have to go along the top of the dam. And Wallace rec recognises that this is going to be a tougher nut to crack. The upkeep is designed to destroy gravity dams, which the Myrna and the Ada are, not the earthen dams. But he reckons if you can get six there, that will be enough. But only two manage to attack it. And they do manage to drop their upkeep and um, pretty much the right spot. And they do cause damage, enough damage that later on the, the Sorpa has to be emptied in order to have it 
properly repaired. Mm -hmm. So it's not a complete wasted effort at all. So they sort of get two and a half dams out of the three. I mean, it is the most amazing feat. So in operational terms, pretty much pretty much complete success. And that's, you know, well, it's not complete success. It's sort of 75% success. Okay. But it is, it is just the most incredible feat and the most incredible achievement. And the whole idea is that, you know, from, from the film and from Gibson's book, Enemy Coast Ahead, that he wrote subsequent to the raid, the idea is that somehow, you know, 617 Squadron is, is the best of the best, the kind of top gun of Bomber Command. Uh, and nothing could be further than the truth. You know, there were, were a number of people who, who had done at least one tour of ops, of, of 30 ops, uh, and some who'd done, you know, equivalent to more than 50. But, you know, you can count them on one hand, frankly. Um, a lot of the crews, I'd say sort of um, at least 8 to 10, had done under 15 operations, and some had done as little as three or four. So, you know, you're not talking about the most experienced people in the world. But I guess, you know, six weeks of training obviously did the job. Okay. So, okay, so in operational terms, the, 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 the crews did a remarkable job. They managed to, to land their bombs and, and make them bounce to the right place and, and destroyed those dams. Now, in strategic terms, the point's always been, or the point has been made recently, that it was it didn't actually achieve that much other than a PR victory, but you say otherwise. Well, the, the naysayers always say, and this has been fashionable in the last sort of 15 years or so, it's been to say, well, look, you know, it's good PR, but as you say, a good, good PR coup for, for us back at home. It showed that Bomber Command could do stuff, and it showed our American allies that we were made of, you know, of, of steel and all the rest of it. But no one's ever really talked about the kind of, you know, the, the uh, negative morale effect it had in Germany. That's one thing. So that, that what I thought was interesting. The second thing, the big thing has been that, that the argument is, well, you know, they rebuilt them in kind of four months or four and a half months. And as soon as I saw that, my immediate reaction was, well, hang on a minute, you know, what must it have cost to, to rebuild those dams in that period of time? And I looked at some photographs of the, you know, reconstruction of the Ada and the Myrna, and it's unbelievable. I mean, these are, this is a whole, a huge, huge dam wall covered in scaffolding. There are, running up to the dam wall on the dry side, there are... Um, brand new wooden viaducts with railways on it, bringing material to the down wall. There are um, equivalent of Nissan huts, you know, rows of Barrett blocks that have been built specially for the workers. And how many workers are there? There's sort of thousands of them. It turns out, you know, 70,000 men were, organisation top men were, were diverted to rebuild these dams. And you think about the cost as well, the huge huge astronomical cost right in the middle of the war of rebuilding these in that time. Now why do they rebuild them in that time? Because they have to. They're not short of water in the summer of 1943. Breaking the dams doesn't disrupt steel production or any of the other major industries of the Rook, particularly uh, in 1943, but it would have done in 1944 had they not been repaired. So there is this huge urgency to repair them before the autumn, before the winter rains. And that's why the Germans build it, rebuild them at such breathtaking speed. You don't build something like that when you've just lost a quarter of a million men in Stalingrad, when you've just lost the whole of North Africa, when things are going really badly wrong in the southern Mediterranean with the Allied invasion of Sicily, when the counterattack at Kursk is, is about to take place. You don't do all that unless you absolutely have to. So... Those who say this was a waste of time and, you know, didn't really have a huge impact are talking nonsense. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that 
shortly after the Myrna Dam is reopened um, in the autumn of 1943, uh, Field Marshal Rommel is made commander of Army Group B with, uh, and takes charge of the Atlantic Wall, you know, this planned series of coastal defences that runs all the way from Denmark all the way down to Western France. And of course, where it's supposed to be heaviest is in the, is in, you know, the Dutch um, Belgian coast um, and particularly in the Pas de Calais and down to Normandy. And when he gets there um, in November 1943, he discovers there's hardly any wall at all. And one of the reasons he discovers that is, of course, because so many of the workers have been diverted to rebuild the dams. And they're not just rebuilding the dams, they're also putting up massive anti-aircraft defences on every single dam in Germany. I mean, we're not just talking about the Myrna and the Ada and the Zorpa, we're talking every single one. We're talking huge 100 metre high nets which are erected above. We're talking huge flak installations. Um, these are really major defences, and this is a massive diversion of resources mm. that's being put towards the dams. So anyone who says it was a waste of time, I think is talking nonsense. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash history extra. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. That was James Holland. His book on the Dambusters raid will be published next year, and the Time Watch programme that he's presenting shows on BBC Two on the 8th of November. You can read his feature on the raids in the December issue of BBC History magazine. Well, that's all for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening. Please do tune in next week when we'll be braving the cold with the Arctic convoys of the Second World War. BBC History magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.